Welcome back to Spotlight 19. For our new listeners out there, our podcast is primarily focused on tracking John Faso's voting record and other issues that are important to our district. Today we have a 60-minute interview with Chris Gibson with Sarja at the helm, recorded on Veterans Day weekend. So let's dive right in. Welcome to Spotlight 19. Today we have a very special guest, former New York 19 Congressman Chris Gibson. He's served as our Congressman from 2010 through 2016. And prior to that, Representative Gibson served 29 years in the Army, where he rose to the rank of Colonel, commanding the 82nd Airborne Division's 2nd Brigade. He has served four tours in Iraq, and he was the recipient of four Bronze Star Medals and the Purple Heart. So he's the perfect guest coming off of Veterans Day weekend. Welcome, Congressman Gibson. Uh, You asked me to call you Chris, which is still going to be strange for me, but thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Saja. I appreciate this opportunity. I look forward to our conversation. I just spent the weekend with your book, so I have a lot of good insight into where you're coming from. And since your retirement from Congress, you were busy writing this book. Did you work on it at all while you were in Congress? Yeah, for a couple of months. I think the first work I started doing on it was the last week or so of October of 2016. But I was writing it basically from November, probably through February or so of this year. And then, of course, I had to go through the editing process. And that took me really to about the first of June. So, yeah. Uh, so a little bit in the time that I was finishing up in Congress, but then really the preponderance of it, the finishing and the writing and the editing in the first six months that I was teaching at Williams College. So the book Rally Point has five sections, and I want to take some time for each of the sections because I thought it was a great way to kind of divide up our conversation. Uh, the first section is really a focus I felt on your foreign policy outlook, and it's called Peace Through Strength. And you talk a little bit about your experiences with some of your soldiers. And specifically, I was struck, and I know I'll always remember the story of uh, Staff Sergeant Zachary Wobbler. Am I saying that right? You did. You did. Uh, And he was killed when he was actually aiding a wounded enemy combatant which is something that's actually required by the Geneva Convention. Right. And it was amazing that he, yeah. in that moment when they're facing enemy fire, was able to think back to those foundations and ideals that are hopefully instilled in our military. What I wanted to ask you, though, is our current commander-in-chief has been candid that he is not willing to push some of these fundamental agreements and tenets and actually advocating for policies that go against the Geneva Convention and including torture. And I've seen that you've spoken out against that. But what effect do you think that this is having on our newest military recruits? Can we still expect that type of valor that Sergeant Wobbler showed? Absolutely. Uh, Look, our soldiers, our men and women come from every walk of life all throughout the country. And, you know, they come together to defend this exceptional way of life and its values. So soldiers from the very beginning, when I was a 17-year-old private, we were uh, taught the laws of land warfare and the protocols from the Geneva Convention. So this is something inculcated from the very beginning. And as far as President Trump is concerned, he has uh, spoken from time to time 
rather extemporaneously about views that he has and things that he wants to do. But to my knowledge, every time that he has done that, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Jim Mattis, has pushed back, you might say. He has said, look, there there are rules, there are laws, and we follow them. And uh, General Mattis also explained to President Trump that he didn't see not only torture was wrong, but he also thought it's not helpful. I think that what one does when you're in a very difficult circumstance of combat, if you have a detainee or um, prisoner of war, the best way that you can get in a situation where you can actually get help from that detainee or prisoner of war is if they believe that we can get to a space where everyone's acting in the best interests. So we're looking for a win-win. So I give the example in the book of uh, Hassan uh, when we were in Mosul, and he was so blown away by the fact that he received medical treatment. He was a machine gunner. He was an RPK machine gunner, a very deadly weapon uh, for the enemy, for a very uh, a very capable, I might say pernicious uh, enemy cell, Al-Qaeda cell. And we had been in a long gunfight. I mean, hours. And this guy was wounded fairly early in the gunfight. And at the end of this gunfight, I think it was three or four hours, one of my company commanders is like, what do I do with this guy? I couldn't even remember at first because we'd been through so much in that three or four hours. And I go, oh, that guy that they reported in the first, con- first or second contact. I said, well, we're going to have to evacuate him. We're going to have to get him to the field ho- hospital if he's still alive. I was on the impression that he was expectant right from the start because he had been shot in the stomach. But he survived. And so we brought him to the field hospital and he received – it saved his life. And so when he came to, he didn't fathom. He didn't understand how we saved his life. And then he thought there had to be a motive there. There had to be – maybe they're going to you know, torture him or something like that. But when he saw that we, we just – we're duty-bound to do that, and especially we were feeding him. And once he was able to eat, he wasn't able to eat much at first. But he was able to see that we were trying to fulfill our role as it relates to now he was a detainee. And so he then started cooperating with us. And he provided information. We had to corroborate it. I mean, we don't move on just one source, but we received very pinpoint, very specific information about this cell that had been really a problem for us, the Santa Fe gang. And when we were able to corroborate that information because of his help, and he actually went with us on this nighttime operation, that allowed us to actually detain about 16 enemy combatants without a single shot fired. And my sergeant major and I walked the next morning that commuting. We thought it was really important because we'd also give feedback on how we did. In other words, if we had the wrong information, we'd have been told. But yet we walked up and down this street and nobody challenged us. Nobody said, hey, you took innocent people. That's how we got verification. Not that we said, hey, did we get the right guys? I mean, that would have been obvious. So we just basically just walked up the street and listened to what people said to us. But it was clear to us that Hassan had given us the information. So that information actually able us to stabilize that community, reduce the levels of violence, and actually set the conditions for the first ever free elections in Iraq. And that was directly because we had followed the protocols of the Geneva Convention and acted in concert with our values. Sure. And kind of along that same vein, I think there's a lot of concern that when, you know, the commander in chief or the person at the top is kind of expounding, espousing these views that are contrary to what we've known for so long, uh, it can create a problem. It could sway some of the people that are in the military. So do you think that the generals are having to walk back some of his statements? 
Well, I think the phenomenon that you're pointing to is, in my experience, real, and that is is that the unit over time tends to take on the personality of its commander. So leadership really makes a difference. So it's not uh, unreasonable. Your question is actually uh, fair and also, uh, I think, on point. But what I would tell you is, is that there's been a concerted effort because of the buffer of General Mattis and his work with the chain of command, including General Dunford, the, the chairman. Uh, General Dunford's also pushed back in a very precise and military style. So, you know, that's a fine line, right? Because you don't want to have a situation where the military is superior. We have civilian control of the military. So it's a very fine line that these uh, gentlemen have to walk because what they're saying is what the president meant to say. They're kind of doing that type of thing rather than saying we're countermanding the president. So it's been dicey. I know that there's been a lot of work behind the scenes so that is minimized because it's not helpful. It's not helpful when the president says one thing and then the generals and then, of course, Mattis is not – he's Jim now. He's he's the Secretary of Defense. He's the Honorable Mattis. He's not a general. Of course, that was a whole other matter for civil-military relations as he required a waiver because he hadn't been out for seven years. But the larger point is this is that we believe in the supremacy of American values. We don't believe the military is support is subordinate to those values. So, you know, that that's the way we proceed there. Sure, and I wish that the generals weren't having to spend that time tap dancing around the president's statement. I feel like their expertise is better served elsewhere if they could all just agree to not go in this direction, that would be something that would be comforting to a lot of people. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to see how much of a learning uh, soul he is, uh, the president, because, you know, obviously that kind of friction, as you point out, we're, we're better off putting that effort and time into focus. It's hard. To, it's already hard enough to do these missions. We don't need side, you know, <laughs> sure. side shows. And in, in concluding the first section of your book, uh, you referenced actually alienated Muslim youth, and that really spoke to me in this moment. I think after the election, um, we've seen a rise in hate crimes and Islamophobia has been in the news. And, you know, my family um, is Muslim. I grew up as Muslim American. And in the weeks and months after September 11th, there was some backlash. But overall, I think I had a good experience. But in the past year, we've seen a little bit more of some animosity that has come out. One of those experiences was actually uh, my sister's, where somebody, for the first time in years, made comments to her. And this alienation that you talk about abroad is something that could be happening here at home, because we see a lot of talk and misunderstanding about Muslims that is being amplified, because we have elected officials that are amplifying this type of rhetoric. And We also see on a lower level that a lot of our local elected officials aren't speaking out against that immediately. And I think in our community, it's creating some isolation. What do you think about that? So several, several things. Uh, First of all, you know, what was so exceptional about America from the very outset is we've been a melting pot since the very beginning. If you believed in our founding documents that every soul has natural rights from God, government's job is to secure those rights, and they were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so if you believe in those ideas, then you were an American, regardless of what background you came from. So uh, we then furthered this idea in the Constitution when we refined the spirit of Philadelphia 
we explicitly stated that there shall not be any religious tests for oaths of office. So we affirmed this idea of religious liberty. So I think there's a very strong constitutional basis for non-discrimination based on faith. And in fact, more than that, government has a responsibility to secure the right of every soul to be able to live out their faith. So I want to say that very clearly. The next thing is, is related to this, which we are sort of going with your comment as well, is how do we defeat this extremism? You know, how do we defeat uh, the Islamic State? How do we defeat al-Qaeda? I make the case in the book that when we help particularly Muslim peoples and nations, when we help them defeat the military threat, we not only neutralize that capability, but what we also do is help expose the fraudulent nature of this enemy because the Islamic State claims that they're advancing the cause of Muslims when, in fact, no one kills more Muslims than the Islamic State. So when we actually support Muslim peoples and nations defeating the Islamic State, we undermine their ability to recruit and to fundraise. And I think this is a very key point. When we inadvertently or unwittingly occupied in the way that we did, we end up strengthening the narrative of the Islamic State. The Islamic State says the United States is here to conquer, here to uh, subjugate, here to deny religious experience, and that's the claim. And then – so what I'm arguing is, is we got to stop doing that. I, I don't think that's in our best interest to occupy nations, to nation build. I think that there is a role for us diplomatically. Uh, there is a role for us to support because the Islamic State is an existential threat. But I think the question is, what's the smart way to do it? So I argue in the book that that's the best way to do it because I think that is the way that we can undermine their their arguments, which are really hurtful. Absolutely. And I think the, the rhetoric here has conflated the Islamic State with the values of all Muslims. And that's certainly something I don't think anyone wants, but uh, it's something that's happening and it's going to have unfortunate consequences unless we address them. And, and let me say one other thing. I served with the Muslim soldiers in the U.S. military. So not only is this a country where we have religious liberty, where everyone can live out their faith, but we have Muslim Americans who are defending that very constitutional right, and that needs to be recognized as well. In fact, as been known in the last year, we've had Muslim Americans give the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our freedoms. Sure. Uh you know, we can spend so much time on each of the parts of your book, but the, the second part is actually about restoring our founding principles, which you talked about a little bit, and we're seeing so much divisiveness in our politics, which is actually goes back quite a ways, and, you know, the initial founding fathers were having duels and also politically divisive, but you open that chapter about with talking about bonding with other members of Congress. And uh, I'm wondering if you still keep in touch with some of them. And do you think there has been a change in um, kind of the fraternization between members of Congress from different sides since the election uh, in 2016? Well, you know, I just did an event um, this past Monday in Washington, D.C. This was a bipartisan event. Tim Walls is a Democrat from Minnesota, dear friend, along with Dan Lipinski, He's a Democrat from Chicago and is part of my book tour, Kramer's Books, uh, which is around DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., asked if I could bring a Democratic member, and we ended up with two. So these guys, we did a lot together. I mean, you know, Walls was the highest-ranking enlisted man to ever serve. You know, he figures prominently in the book because we actually 
co-authored legislation that President Obama signed, several big pieces. We, we co-authored the Posture Act, which actually helped the strength of the land forces. He was the author, and I was a co-sponsor of the Clay Hunt Suicide Awareness and Prevention Bill, and we were the co-authors of the Beginning Farmer Rancher Opportunity Act. Two-thirds, three-quarters of that ended up in the federal farm bill that President Obama signed. So this wasn't just some kumbaya. We really worked together in ways that made meaningful difference for our constituents in the country. So we stay – we're good friends. I mean we really enjoy each other as company. And Dan Lipinski and his wife Judy, we've traveled together in the book. I talk about this trip that uh, I led that we went to Israel, Latvia, Poland, and Germany. And Dan Lipinski was my Democratic co-lead and his wife came as well. And so the listeners understand the taxpayers pay nothing for the spouses. The, the, the members pay for that. So I just want to be clear on that. But it's also a wonderful bonding experience for everybody to be together. I found that I had amazing opportunity to make deep friendships with people on both sides of the aisle. Just before I came here, I heard from a member uh, the hour before I came here, and in the last week, I've exchanged texts with about a half dozen. So I'm in really good contact with you know my former colleagues, and they do report that the environment has uh, become more challenging. Arguably, we've never been more divided than uh, than right now uh, since the Civil War. Anyways, but you know the point in the book is that in many ways, the sort of vitriol and the lack of civility and respect, I argue, is actually a symptom. The cause is the fact that we're not working together for rule of law. We've, we've changed the way we affect significant political change in the country. Since the founding, we were always meant to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So we had representative government, and the representatives would come forward with ideas. There would be draft bills. There would be amendments. There would be votes on the amendments. There would be bills, up or down vote, and then that was presented to the president. That very process requires folks to build relationships, work together, listen to each other, take amendment votes, take input from both sides. It causes collegiality on the floor and then change is never easy. It's not easy in our personal lives. It's not easy in the community. It's certainly not easy in government. So when representatives go home and they explain it, they get pushback. From, from both sides, but you have this curious situation where you have Republicans and Democrats standing on the same ground defending the need for change because of the accommodation in the bill. So that process not only brings legislators together, but it stitches together communities across the country. So the rule of law actually helps us stitch communities together and help us live out e pluribus unum. So what's changed then? Well, as I explained in the book, we don't really do significant political change that way anymore. Now, increasingly, we actually have consolidated powers that once were separated for the purpose of checks and balances and for liberty and for auxiliary checks. But we now have consolidated that, and we now see significant political change done by fiat, one person, executive orders and actions, rules and regulations. And there are a place for all these things, by the way. The, the answer isn't to go to zero on any of that. But anytime you have significant political change – that is meant to come from the people, not by fiat. So let me illustrate. So about 12 or 13 years ago, you know, I, as I mentioned in the book, I'm the first Republican in my family, lifelong uh, Democrats in our family, working class uh, tradition. But even given the fact that I'm the first Republican, I remember about 12, 13 years ago, as I was shuttling back and forth to Iraq, I remember hearing the arguments on the left and they said, George Bush He's affecting significant change through executive orders and signing statements. He's, he's started this rendition. He's done this extraordinary uh, enhanced interrogation. None of this stuff was voted on, right? Even Gitmo. They didn't vote on these things. And you know, the point was I remember listening going, you know what? 
they got a point. That should have been voted on. That should have been debated and voted on. But then a few years later, the very same people who were defending George W. Bush and those that were critiquing, it all turned on its head because President Obama came to the chamber and I was there one day and he said to the Congress, it was a State of the Union address, he said, he said, I urge you to take action. But if you don't, I got a pen and I got a phone. And then the situation was those that were critiquing George W. Bush for taking fiat were actually saying, you know what? It's necessary because Congress is not acting. And then the right was saying, but that's not constitutional. Okay, so that was then. Now it's 2017. And Donald Trump says he's done more than any other recent president. Well, we haven't passed one significant piece of legislation in 2017. He's just making my point. Any change that he has affected, it's an arguable point to begin with, but any change he's affected has been by fiat. It's been by executive order. And so my point to you is that if you take the refugee ban that you alluded to earlier, think of how that was tearing the country apart, right? Because he was doing it by fiat rather than having the legislators work through the issues and say, you know, security's not where we want it to be, so what's the right way to do it consistent with our values? That could have led to a different outcome, right? No, he did executive order. And so what I'm telling you is, is that regardless of what side of the aisle, Republican or Democrat, when you use fiat to do this, what happens is the party that wins claim the spoils. To the party opposite, what they do is they claim that any change in that fashion is illegitimate. And so this is what leads to these, the sense of, well, that's illegitimate change. So, I mean, that's part, of the, that's part of the challenge that we're dealing with today is that we need to get back to doing the messy work of self-governance. Do you think we'll get there given that a lot of the sweeping legislation, and I think later on we'll talk a little bit about the Republican tax plan, but they're being presented without that you know, without time for debate, without kind of blindsiding the public and the the opposition party with the legislation and not having that time to hash things out and actually work together and, so, you know, so demanding a vote before Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever it is at the so, moment. So I would tell you this. It's a mistake not to follow the process. And so when you take a look at the health care bill, for example, you know, the fact of the matter is the Republican plans never really followed through on what they said they were going to do. Remember, they said they were actually going to drive down costs, they were going to retain quality, and they were going to expand access. Well, here's the thing. The, the, the aspects that we know can actually do that. So we're talking about countrywide plans. We're talking about competitive bidding for prescription drugs. We're talking about the medical liability reform that was implemented in California, a very purple state. You could actually argue more blue than red. Well, they couldn't actually do those three things. Why? Because they made an a priori decision to do this with Republican-only votes. So this was the so-called reconciliation you've probably come to know about, right? I mean this is when you only need 50 votes in the vice president. Well, if you, if you, if you use that approach of reconciliation, you have to comply with what's called the bird rule. And the bird rule is very specific. And so these three things that actually everyone knows we need to do couldn't be in the bill. So was it any surprise when the CBO came back and scored the Republican plans as, as not helpful? What they should have done is they should have worked on a bipartisan new healthcare system, and I offer one in the book. I actually offer the, what I think is a – I describe as a center-right plan. It would actually help people who need subsidies, but it would do so without having to pay three times for it. I mean I didn't – I never liked the Affordable Care Act. I think this plan I offer in this, in this book is better, but this I think would definitely get Democratic votes.
So this was a mistake. So it's not just an academic point, this idea that we're not using the rule of law. It's actually breaking down the comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, and we're not even getting the best legislation out of it. So it's the same with the tax bill. You know, the tax bill, again, you know, this tax bill right now is not the kind of bill that the country needs. It's a problem. We've got issues with that bill when it comes to, certainly in New York State, we've got issues with the state and local taxes. But also, let's remember, it's not revenue neutral, which is when you're $20 trillion in debt, that's a problem. I personally think it's a huge problem. I worry about the next generation. So I'm still hopeful that we will get to an accommodation. I think there's a deal out there, actually. If you listen and watch closely to what the Blue Dogs are saying, there are Democrats that will support a bipartisan plan, but it can't be this one. It's got to be one that can be amended. There's three things that I'd recommend. The first of which is 20% is just too ambitious, I think, to be able to have it be revenue neutral and to get back reinstated the state and local taxes. Keep in mind, when I say that, Reagan... Reagan and Tip O'Neill, they never touched the state and local taxes. You know, that's considered the gold standard, uh, many do, I do, of what tax reform should look like. That was a bipartisan piece of legislation that actually helped grow the economy. We saw rising wages in the 1980s and 90s. That tax reform never touched state and local taxes. Okay, that's number one. So, you know, how do we then get to a situation? Well, I think the first thing is rather than having a goal of 20% for your business tax or your corporate tax, I think 25 is what should have been the goal. The, uh, the next thing is, is some of these loopholes, like the carried interest loophole, should be closed. And then finally, with regard to the estate tax, you can also find savings instead of completely doing away with it as part of an accommodation, as part of a compromise. You could actually double the exemption to $22 million per family, which is basically would cover your family farms, which is what a lot of folks worry about. Uh, in most of your family businesses, uh, $22 million. And then the rate, instead of being 55% on what's left, should be the same as the top rate, which is 39.5 uh, or 6. So you know, my point is, is that if you actually did those three reforms in an amendment to the bill, you would do two things. One is you'd be able to put back in the, the state and local taxes. The second thing is, is it would be pretty close to revenue neutral, which actually would be good for millennials and for really for the whole country. And – that's something that you know. That I think that could get wide support. I think that would get over 300 votes in the U.S. House. Instead, what they're doing is they're proceeding again with a partisan bill that runs the risk of getting defeated in the Senate because you know you got a math problem over there. Uh, you can only afford to lose two Republicans, and you know it's challenging. So it's I think it's better strategy and better policy to actually work on listening to all voices and finding a way to accommodate. It's going to be better for our country in the end. Sure. And in that same section, you kind of touched on some of the the plans you laid out, but you have a platform for presidency. And I'm going to pull out a reporter question. And do you have any plans to run run for that the high office. Well, let me just say this, that <laughs> what's in Rally Point is actually a framework that I think that can bring us together. And look, I'm a big believer that people can change. Uh, I hope President Trump changes. You know, I would love to see uh, Epiphany and, you know, have him work together with uh, all Americans. I want to see our country succeed. I want to see, therefore, him succeed. So I hope he reads Rally Point. 
So this isn't about me. This is about a framework that I believe works. I mean, this, this, there's a lot of reflection in this book. There's a lot of philosophy and history. This is not even the time for campaigns. One of the problems we have in this country is there's just way too much campaigning. Now is the time for governance. So there'll be a time for campaigns again. You get to 20, uh, mid, midway through 2019 and, and early into 2020, there'll be plenty enough time for campaigns. But right now is the time for governance. Will and I believe be this having is, one? What's that? Will you be having a presidential campaign? <laughs> I'll stop pressing you. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, I, I'm sincere in that I want to see governance right now. So as to what, you know, as far as my personal future, uh, look, right now I'm very committed to two things. One is uh, my family, right? I mean, right. you know, so my son's here tonight, he's sitting over here. <laughs> Uh, and also my professional obligations at Williams College. I'm signed on through the summer of 2019, so I won't be a candidate for anything <laughs> in 2018. Well, three of the points that you make in your platform, which I found incredibly interesting, were campaign finance reform, independent redistricting, and appointing judicial candidates with a record, which are three issues that you don't often hear from the conservative side. And I wanted you to kind of expand, especially um, appointing candidates with a strong judicial record. We're seeing Trump has the highest rate of judicial appointees. And more recently, he's appointing an attorney in Alabama that just passed the first committee that has less experience than I do and less years uh, admitted to the bar. Uh, what do you think about all these conservative judicial well, appointments here, that are happening? So there's, there's a need for a, just a little bit of context before I respond because these are deeply held views that I have. These reforms are necessary. Look, whether you went to a Trump rally or a Bernie Sanders rally, okay – there's a deep feeling that this system we have is rigged economically and politically. People feel that the system doesn't work for us anymore. And so, look, after six years in Congress, and I'm a glass is five, six full always, but I agree. I think the system is rigged. So when you see me advocating for term limits and advocating for independent redistricting and, a and advocating for campaign finance reform of the right kind, I argue, when you see me arguing for that in lobbying ban, it's because I think we need to revitalize. We need to renew our democracy. I mean we, we were always meant to be one person, one vote, and I feel really strongly about the views I have. I don't feel like I need to tilt the scales. I'm willing to go anywhere to debate them, and I don't think I need to skew you know, what the district looks like or what the money looks like. I think if you have a good idea that you really believe in, you should be able to stand and debate it anywhere. I'm a very fervent supporter of these reforms because I want to fix a broken system. The term limits, I say 12 years, that's a moderation on that view, actually. I had a more uh, strident view on that, but I've considered the other side. The other side thinks that, well, you know, then you're going to have too much staff control. I mean, I've looked at this from every angle. We're all products of our experience. In the military, you never command for more than three years. You command for two or three. And you know what? That rotation is actually really good for the institution. It's good to get fresh ideas in. So I think 12 years is long enough uh, time to make a difference. The independent redistricting is because we have this illusion that we pick our representatives when too often representatives actually pick their voters every 10 years after the census is counted. We basically rigged the system for incumbents. And so, you know, some people say, well, you know, you really don't need term limits because, well, the ballot box is the term limit. Well, the problem, though, is if that would be in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. The system's rigged for incumbents. And you are someone actually who was the representative from two different right. districts. Well, I, I, and I, you're right about that. And I actually went from a slightly Republican district to a district that voted for President Obama twice, including by almost seven points one time. But I never complained about that redistricting because I shouldn't be picking my lines. So I'm, I'm saying to you that there's a lot of philosophy and history behind these 
policy positions that I have. Now on the judges, here's my point on the judges. From the very beginning, we were meant to have a separation of powers, three separate but equal branches. And what's happened is not only have we consolidated powers into the executive branch, and by the way, that wasn't a heist. Congress willingly gave up a lot of those powers. They gave it up, and they shouldn't have. We have to insist that they take it back. And ironically, you're going to need a president to actually make it happen. He's going to have to make the Congress work. He or she is going to have to make the Congress work. So now on the judges, not only have we consolidated powers into the executive branch, but quite frankly, the the judicial branch is now basically an extension of the executive branch. We've so over-politicized the judiciary that it's hard to now see it as a separate branch. I mean, this is why I actually argue in the book, you really should only have two criteria. You should not be doing these litmus tests. These litmus tests are essentially over-politicizing the branch. And so it should be integrity and then their record, their record as far as adhering to the Constitution. That is a conservative view, by the way, because what that does then is if you have adherence to those constitutional principles, what that does is it pushes the conversation into the political spectrum. And the political spectrum, it requires votes and for, for civic participation. So I, what I argue is we need to move away from all these litmus tests and then really just picking judges based on integrity and their record. Sure. And I hope we can kind of return to that. But uh, I'm, the, the story from the weekend with the, with the blogger turned potential f- federal judge is, you know, it's alarming to me because I don't think that would have you know, 10 years ago, I don't think that would have happened. Of course, now there is a constitutional check there, right? I mean, the Senate has the right, the right to advise and consent. So we'll see yeah, what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. See uh, what happens. For sure. Um, so the third part of your book is about promoting a flourishing life. And it talks a little bit about some companies here in New York 19. Uh, one of those was Amphenol, which was a small company that was a job creator here. And, you know, you hear a lot of the candidates and also John Fazel talking about, you know, creating jobs for this district. It's what we desperately need. And one of the ways you actually kept Amphenol in the district was uh, after Hurricane Irene, which was during your time in Congress, which really devastated this district. Uh, you helped them get uh, back back to running very quickly after the flooding. Well, it was a team effort. I want to say, you know, Senator Schumer played a big role in this. Uh, quite frankly, even though I'm a big critic, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, played a constructive role in this, and the local officials worked doggedly. So, you know, I'm talking about Andy Matviak as the mayor of Sydney, the town supervisor there, the county. This was just an overall team effort, but, you know, this was necessary because the company had actually been hit twice. This company actually has about not quite a thousand, about 900 employees in central New York. So it's a major employer because that's a very rural area. You're about 45 minutes away from Binghamton in Sydney. So it's fairly, I mean, this is a town of 5,000 people to put it in perspective, Sydney in Delaware County. And it's right on the border with Otsego and Shenango, by the way, it sits right at the sort of the nexus of those three counties. And you might even say Broome could be the nexus of four counties. But the point is, is that about 900 employees, you have multi-generations that are impacted. You'll see, I go in there and walk the floor. You'll see, you know, a grandfather, a father and a son or a daughter, you know, they're all involved on this floor. So saving that company was really important. And after the second time they were hit with a flood, they were going to take off. In the book, I tell the very stark story. I mean, Leadership was not happy to see me. And so I had to really work hard to try to show that I was sincere. I was going to do everything I could for them. They just didn't want to see any politicians after this thing because after they had hit the first time, they 
didn't feel like they had been responsive. It's a good news story in the end because the company actually moved their headquarters. We got them up on a, a high piece of high ground. So I feel like they're protected now. They're about a, about three quarters of a mile away from that first plant. But the point is, is that we're seeing these storms more often and more frequent. And, you know, it's a, it's a reality. It's part of what I talked about in Congress and tried to lead on is just recognizing the fact that, look, climates have changed since time out of memory. At one time, we had dinosaurs walking the earth. We don't now in part because of climate change. But the fact, what's different is, is we're impacting it. Humans are impacting it this time. So it's accelerating and exacerbating the situation. So I think that the first step to addressing that is recognizing the problem. So, you know, I had a resolution in the Congress that uh, was really meant for my party. Uh, so that we could see, you know, look at the science of this. And of course, you know, you, everything, you look at the military, the Joint Chiefs fully recognize this change. But I mean, example is this storm, this hurricanes, uh, both two of them, it was Irene and Lee within six days of each other. And they just completely destroyed large pockets and swaths of our district, including not far from this community right here. Um, actually, this, yeah, this community definitely was hit by it. Uh, this, we're in a floodplain right now. And, yeah. you know, we have to be conscientious of the FEMA maps that are issued uh, here. And something that uh, concerns me and something that I think one of the reasons why you are so respected and beloved in the district is because you had a great environmental track record. And that's so important to the Hudson Valley and the Catskills. And how do you feel now that you're seeing the administration walking back Climate change is real. The world has signed on. We're now the only country that's no longer in the Paris Climate Accord. And, you know, you can say that it's not binding and the market is, you know, moving away from non-renewables. But there is going to be this reinvestment in coal and it's already happening. And there are going to be effects from that that, you know, we might think we're immune from it here in New York State, which is not going to return to coal, but air knows no boundaries. Water knows no boundaries. So uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts on some of this? uh, Look, I mean, yeah, uh, you look at what the Trump administration is doing, but also remember that federalism has many different facets, right? So you see, I think it's about 20 different states that are still sticking to what they view as the smart policy forward, not to mention you know, cities within those states. This is a situation where 100 years from now, you know, if we don't take smart action in the near term, we're going to be in a really tight spot. So look, I think leaders from both sides of the aisle are increasingly going to see how important this is. You know, we're talking about research and development. That's a natural action for a government. In fact, I used to use the analogy, you take a look at the 1940s and 50s, right? I mean, we felt we had a very serious competition with the USSR. And so we made a significant investment, particularly after Sputnik was launched, in trying to make sure that we could rise to that challenge. That very investment that we made, which was first order effect to address the struggle of the bipolar world of communism, that's what gave us the internet. I mean, that's what gave us the supercomputer. That's what gave us the information age. The point is, is that those investments that we make now for photovoltaics, for example, you look at solar power and, you know, we're doing some nanotechnology investments that I'm convinced are going to be quantum in their change. I visited the Brookhaven lab in Long Island. Among the things they're doing is they're using nanotechnology right now so that, I mean, you look at first generation solar. Part of the issue was your sun would bounce off. I mean, you would have an issue. You weren't able to capture all of the potential uh, you know, energy that we could have from that. And so the, through nanotechnology 
we can actually now significantly improve that. So that's just one example where we can get much better output because of an investment we're making for research and development. That's just one example. I could give you a whole bunch. So that is a role. That is a role for government. Even a limited government conservative guy knows that those smart investments that you make in research and development can have significant positive uh, impacts in the out years. Do you think that the the administration and conservatives will kind of go back to that in the aftermath of, so what Trump of said, this administration. So I watched what he said closely. You know, quite frankly, I mean, it's interesting because it looked like he really took his time. I, I almost feel like as if he was saying, is there any way that I could find a way to stay in this? And then he had some advisors tell him, no, you point blank said you weren't. Because you notice how long it took for him to come to that decision. It wasn't just like he did this in his first week. And then even after he made that statement, he said, well, we're still going to be good stewards of the environment. We're still going to try to get back in. He made all these qualifying statements. So the question now is, is what I tell folks is you got to watch what he does. I mean, so we need to hold all our leaders from both sides of the aisle accountable for what they do. At this point, I think we should be watching closely the actions. I haven't seen the latest data in the last few months, but I think we're on track to make the 26 percent. Reduction. I mean, if you take a look at based on 2005, right, the 2005 benchmark, uh, if we miss it, we may miss it by a couple points. You know, it's possible. Now, I know there's some concern about some of these most recent decisions, but the fact of the matter is, is that we have increased. And now this is an issue actually for the left. And this used to be controversial. Because I used to have these meetings and I would tell folks, they say, well, it's good. I'm glad you're making moves on the environment. I said, you know what, when we finally get this right, it's going to be a Republican president, and they'll be aghast. They're like, no, it will be a Democrat. I'm like, it won't. And they'll say, why would you say that? And I look here in New York State because when President Obama, who was a pragmatist on this issue, I disagreed with him on a fair number of issues, but a lot on these issues, he thought he was pretty pragmatic. They picketed him. Barack Obama would come to Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton, and they put a couple hundred, few hundred people. I think it may have been more. They picketed him because of natural gas. And if you, if you would have woke Barack Obama up in the middle of the night and said, in a perfect world, would you be using natural gas? He probably would have said no. But you know what he probably would have said right after that? But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in the real world. So my point to you is this. If you want to significantly reduce emissions, there isn't any way that you can get from A to B without a bridge strategy. And that means you need nuclear power and you need natural gas. Now, does that mean I'm satisfied with the current state of natural gas uh, extraction? No. In fact, I was a co-author of the bill that really was a legacy bill of Maurice Hinchy. Hinchy had the Frack Act. It was four and a half pages, right? It basically said two things, that your companies need, need to disclose chemicals and comply with the Safe Water Drinking Act, which, by the way, they used to have to do before 2005, and then they got a carve out. So what I would tell you is, is that those two things need to be put in place so that we can manage risk better for natural gas. And then there's the issue of what do we do about the problems we're having with uh, many earthquakes, and we should need to be looking at that too. My larger point is this. There's risk getting up out of bed in the morning, but we have to manage risk. And if we're serious about reducing emissions, then we have to do a whole bunch of things. That means, yes, we need to continue to work research and development. We need to continue to build out renewable energy sources. By the way, Barack Obama's years, he doubled them. He doubled, but we went from 3% to 6%. So that's where we're at. We have to be realistic about this. So why always say that we're going to get there with a Republican president is because the left won't let a Democratic president do the things that are necessary to get to a bridge. Because when I talk to them, because I listen, I know what they tell me. We want to do it all renewable. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's great. Can we do it in all renewable? Nobody's been able to show me that we can. Let me give you one final point. Before I left office, I had a meeting in Sullivan County. And it was like my last 10 days or so. And we were out there actually to talk about the upper Delaware River. But one of the questions had to do with a solar farm. And this person was a Bernie Sanders supporter and was really upset that we were putting a commercialized solar power farm in Sullivan County. And, you know, so it looked to me for a response. And I'm like, well, look, I had the same issue with uh, wind power. Not far from there. I was actually in Otsego County. I was asked to come in because, quite frankly, the left knew I supported wind power and the right was really standing in the way of this wind power project. And so I came in and they said, well, what do you think about wind power? And I said, well, let me just say this. When I was 12 years old, I couldn't stand the taste of coffee. Now I can't imagine life without it because I acquired a taste for coffee. To me, when I look at a wind turbine, that's the new beautiful. Maybe soldiers won't have to go to the Middle East in the next generation. And maybe we can actually become energy independent. So that was my message to Richfield Springs. I look at a wind turbine and I think it's the new beautiful. I think we should all. But it's the same with if we're actually – we made a change in New York State where we actually allowed now for not just solar panels on your roof and for your backyard, but we actually allowed for – we had changed the title that allowed for these big solar fields. And the purpose of which was to increase. And now we're getting folks saying, well, I don't want that in my backyard. Look, if we're going to be serious about reducing emissions and making the move towards renewable energy and getting a comprehensive program together, then we're going to have to have more renewable energy sources, number one. And number two is unless somebody can – I'm willing to learn here. If I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong. But I think we need a bridge strategy, and I think on that issue, Barack Obama was right. And we'll see how the Democratic Democratic Party is going forward because I watched the primaries pretty closely and they were like, no fracking, no this. Well, again, I get it. The fact that the fracking situation now is not acceptable. And I, you know, I co-authored that bill. I agree. But we can't say no fracking ever. We got to find a way to do it safer and manage the risk because we need that as a bridge because it is cleaner. It is cleaner to these other sources. Same with nuclear power. People want to get rid of all nuclear power. Well, you know, in New York State, in New York State, a third of the electricity that we get is coming from nuclear power. So unless you've got a way to uh, replace that, then you know, you're, you're talking about doubling costs and seeing uh, brownouts. So tell me how I'm wrong. So here we uh, took a break in recording, and off mic, I asked Chris what he thought about the Trump administration's attempts to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency and its effects on the future of clean energy. I also asked him his thoughts on the massive staff cuts taking place in the State Department, primarily the firing of many of our key diplomats. And this is what he said. So, yeah, thanks, Justin. I can. So a couple things. First of all, uh, well, you know, the guy who's actually the regional administrator now is a friend of mine, Pete Lopez. So it's going to be really interesting. And, you know, of the EPA. Yeah. Yes. And so and, you know, just as I feel deeply that, you know, to protect resources is a conservative impulse. So, you know, you need to protect budget resources. But you don't need to protect the earth. There's only one of the earth. I know Pete Lopez feels the same way. So it's going to be interesting to hear what he says about his own budget and how well he can, because we've got issues here. You know, we've got the flood issues coming from the climate change. We've actually got super fun sites throughout our district. And so we're going to need that kind of funding to make sure we follow through on our obligations. So, and I believe Pete's a straight shooter. So we're going to find out. I believe he'll tell us if he's having problems. One, one, one refinement, um, 
when you mention the future of renewable energy, a lot of that actually does come through different accounts, uh, some of which come through the Department of Energy and some of it actually come through the Department of Defense. So there's a very important line I call it uh, that that's called ARPA-E, which is basically your Advanced Research Project uh, Agency for Energy. And, you know, that's a, that's a line I tried to protect in my six years because it in some way, in many, it's a lot similar. It's similar to this DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project. So that's an account that will help us with research and development. And then there's some other accounts that can actually help with appropriations that if you can find yourself with a smart improvement that you can then quickly manufacture, which is then the other issue. Is the go- I think government can play a role there. We can guarantee some loans and do some things to help us. If we can actually get a breakthrough in research and development, you want to quickly bring it to market. So I think government has a role. So it is fair to say that, that those accounts need to be watched. On State Department, I spoke out, I, I think it's one of my op-ed pieces. If you believe in peace through strength, then the purpose of deterrence, this is in that first chapter, the purpose of deterrence is so that you can actually pivot quickly to leading with our greatest strengths, which is our ideas, and, and our people. So that's through diplomacy. So you can't have a peace to strength approach if you're cutting the State Department. I also think it's worth mentioning that Secretary of Defense Mattis very quickly spoke up. He said, if you're going to cut the State Department, then you don't, I don't have nearly enough ammunition. He was being tongue-in-cheek, by the way. But the point is he did not support these cuts to the State Department either. But I think you're also going to find, if you watch it really closely, the Congress isn't going to go along with what the Trump administration is actually proposing. Now, does that mean it will be the same as the appropriation of last year? I, I don't think it will get that high, but it isn't going to be nearly as low as the Trump administration requested. Do you think that – what do you think about all the unfilled or the vacancies in the State Department that are kind of throughout all of our embassies around the world? Well, I mean, look, we're, we're dealing with a very serious situation in you know North and South Korea right now, and yet we're waiting on an ambassador for South Korea. You got to have the team in place. So, you know, this – I'm speaking now from my experience as a former commander. You, you really – you got to have your key – players in place. It's not in our interest to not have this uh, these slots filled. So, look, you know it's it's always the case that administrations will they don't get everybody in right away, but this administration's l- slower than anyone that I can think of in recent years. Sure. And um just to move things along, I saw one of your chapters is called Keep Faith. Yes. And that was so interesting to us because when we formed the show, Justin's sign-off for the show that he kind of came up with was Keep the Faith uh, to tell our listeners. So it was interesting. And in that chapter, you talk a little bit about the relationship between conservatism and Dr. King. And, you know, I think a lot of people were in the district and, you know, around the country were really impressed with the fact that after the Charlottesville tragedy, you wrote an op-ed. And a lot of other elected officials were kind of late to speak out or didn't speak out. And, you know, we saw our president who, frankly, had a pretty appalling statement on the issue. And, you know, I was wondering, how can liberals once again get away from the narrative that conservatism is being now equated with racism? So, um I think it's important when you say you have to really define what a conservative is. I mean, I think it's really important to do that. And to me, you have to ask the question, what are you conserving? To me, what I think we should be conserving is those founding principles, which were decidedly liberal in the 18th century, the idea that we could live free. I mean, nobody believed that in the world. Certainly not the heads of state of Europe. 
they really thought that we would fail. We were 95% or more farmers. The idea that we could govern ourselves. So it wasn't just self-governance. Is that we brought forward a Bill of Rights. We believed that you had the right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, right to arms. You couldn't have soldiers in your house unless it was due process. That was, and you had to be paid market value. You got to be reasonably safe in who you were and who you were in your belongings. This was the Fourth Amendment. So you know, we brought forward this Bill of Rights and. And I feel very strongly about that, and my record reflects that. So I think when you talk about what it means to be an American, if you believe in those founding documents, then you have natural rights that government has responsibility to secure. Dr. King, he was an amazing leader for all times, for all people for all times, because you know when he was marching, when he was initially in Birmingham, and he was being jailed and he was beat up, and then the same with Selma, he was reminding the president – you have a responsibility. We're American citizens. You have the responsibility to secure us. We're being denied our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That is your job. And you know, in my class at Williams College, we show the movie Selma. It's a tragedy in so many ways. It's tough to watch, but it's so important to watch. But you can see this writ large that when Dr. King is writing from the Birmingham jail, he says he talks about the urgency of how bringing forward these natural rights and securing them. And then at the mall, when you look at these two speeches that he gave, he basically says, I refuse to believe that the wealthiest nation in the world has insufficient funds to cash this check. I'm here to cash a check. And the check is the Declaration of Independence. It's the right. It's a natural right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, the issue for Trump, he missed the point. Is there violence on the left and right? Of course there is. I mean, it's all wrong. But he missed the point. The issue with Charlottesville was Friday. It wasn't Saturday. When these guys were marching up and down the street with their tiki lanterns and they were, they were saying things like uh, Jews will not replace us and everything like that, Trump should have tweeted Friday night. And said, look, it's America. You can think anything you want, but what you're thinking is wrong, and you'll get no help from this administration, and you should go home. And don't come back until you're ready to be part of the solution in America. Had he tweeted something like that, they would have went home. And I don't think we would have had a problem with Saturday. But instead, he didn't do anything. That's what a leader should have taken a strong moral stance on Friday when these guys came out and marched in the streets. He should have told them, look, you do have a right to assemble, but you know what you're talking about is completely outside the bounds of the American dream. And I think that calling it for what it was is the response that a lot of people around the country were looking for. And there was a failing kind of nationally on the part of our president, but also other elected officials that didn't come out strongly against it. And I think that kind of is why we are where we are today, where it is very divisive. Your last section of the book is called Unify and Grow. And you talk about your successful campaign in 2010. And, you know, on Spotlight 19, we've had a lot of the candidates who are interested in running for Congress in 2018 on. And I was reading your book and I was amused because it it was almost like a blueprint for how you could be successful in this district. I wanted to know what you think are traits that New York 19 values in a candidate. Mm. So, yeah, I'm going to get to that. But before I do, I just want to wrap up the keep faith because it's a key point, And that is it's not only keeping faith in God. And by the way, that's a – I mean that's a choice. In America, you can either choose to believe or not to believe. We have the freedom, the freedom. And then if you believe, you have the freedom to live out your faith. But that chapter – really is not only about that, but it's about keeping faith in us as a people. Uh, we have, you know, this this sort of exceptional way of life, uh, it didn't just happen. These were choices we made earlier, and 
look, I mean, what concerns me more than anything is the fact that we've been in tough spots before, but we've always believed that we could do it. We could come together and overcome. And now increasingly people think, well, you know, maybe this is too hard. In fact, somebody I've known for most of my life who I would consider a moderate actually said to me just before I left Congress said, you know, Chris, you guys in Congress, you can't fix it. We just need to give it to Trump. We just need to give it to a strong man to fix. And as somebody who really believes in liberty and believes in us, that I couldn't disagree more. I mean, look, if you start to move towards authoritarian approaches, humans – I have a very realistic view about humanity. I think humans are incapable of extraordinary love and sacrifice, but there's another side too. I mean – humans, absolute power corrupts and it won't be long before we see tyranny and the stamping out of liberty. So I am for the messy self-governance and not for authoritarian. So I I want to see us keep faith in our ability to be self-governing. That's the larger point. And that means that we have responsibilities. As citizens, we have rights and we have responsibilities. And keeping faith means that we need to take our responsibilities of citizenship very seriously. And that means not only knowing issues, it certainly means voting, but it also means knowing what the issues are, communicating to our representative and holding our representatives accountable for the things that they said they would do. So now on the final chapter, you know, yeah, I mean, this is really a story about people uh, because, uh, you know, when I first got out of the army, this was, I retired on the 1st of March of 2010. And I was up against an incumbent who had over a million dollars in the bank, was considered popular, had won an election, uh, you know, not long ago, and uh, not before, uh, not long before that. And uh, myself, I had no name recognition, I had no money, and I had no national support. So, I mean, nobody thought that we had a chance to win. But the fact of the matter is, is that people really got involved, and they talked to their neighbors. And that's really the story about what happened in 2010 is I was outspent. Uh, you know, My opponent outspent me, but we worked hard, and we never lost faith that we could win. And in the end, we did win. So now that was a different district. That was the 20th. This is now the, uh, the 19th district, and uh, it's about 60% new. That's why I used to joke that I, I got to run for Congress for the first time twice. Right, because the majority of my district was new in 2012. Uh, but you know, I think the recipe, I think the same approach will work, and that is, is just being out among the people, listening to the kind of representation that they're uh, looking for in Washington D.C., and finding ways to connect. Because I firmly believe this, and I say this from experience, having been in Iraq and Kosovo. You know, as Americans, we have so much more in common than we ever have apart. We certainly have spirited debate. But we actually relish that, right? As long as it's civil and then we have a dispute uh, resolution process that's peaceful and allows for the accommodation of differences. But we actually appreciate the diversity of thought that we have and the and the freedoms that we have that go along with that. But so I, I do think that um, you know I would love to see a renewal in faith in this uh, representative democracy, and that's going to really require that you know our all our congressmen and women throughout the country spend time with their people and really get to know them and do their best to represent them. Do you think, uh, how important do you think it is to be from the area, you know, in a candidate? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, look, uh, 
Sean Patrick Maloney would tell you, you know, he wasn't from that district. So, I mean, you can always find examples where, but generally speaking, uh, to form that bond, to connect with others, it's really important to have a deep connection. Uh, so if you've, if you've grown up in an area, then you went to school with folks who, you know, parents did many different things. So you, you've actually seen an eclectic array of uh, generally speaking if you've been to a public school you've you've known the community and so that helps and uh, that really helps you represent and then if you played sports many young folks do then you've actually interacted with you know another whole conference of folks and maybe sectionals so that gives you a pretty wide sampling uh, of, of an understanding of the area so i think if you're from the area you certainly are in a stronger position to understand and represent Sure. And uh, just, you know, we'd love to keep going, but <laughs> it's getting late. But um, what is next for you? So, uh, well, most immediately, <laughs> Connor and I will head home. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for me, I'm, I am for the next 18 months, I'm fully committed uh, to my obligations at Williams College. I've signed on through the summer of uh, 2019. And, you know, I'm enjoying having time to really spend with our kids and uh, for Mary Jo. I mean, we, uh, we have much, we have more time for hobbies now. It's pretty neat. <laughs> I mean, uh, the latest thing that our family's been into is I've been able to catch up. Yes, I'm going there, son. <laughs> <laughs> I've been able to catch up. I'm watching The Walking Dead. I find it so interesting. <laughs> well, because I tend to be an over-analytical philosophical person and they really open up big questions, I think, in that show of, what does it mean to be human? What is right and wrong? You know, how do we deal with a situation in a post-apocalyptic world? So, I mean, this has been not really fun. We we spent half the ride down here, Connor and I, talking about the show that was on last night. So that actually, I know it seems trivial, but those things are really important to me. I mean, it's really share life with family. And so that's been really fun. And I look forward to more of that. And as far as what happens after that, honestly, I don't know. We'll see. You know, I'll tell you one thing, just one last thing on it, because we're all products of our experience. As an Army guy, I feel just as comfortable being the commander as I do being the staff because you grow up in that set of responsibilities. So uh, in the politics, people say, well, he's going to run for something. Well, maybe, but also maybe I'll, maybe I'll help because I don't have to be the commander. I don't have to be the candidate. I could also be a helper because in the end, it's not about me. It's about the service. And I believe passionately in the country and about the future of our, our land. So I may get involved in some of the way helping. If I find a man or woman I can really get behind, I may do that. We'll see. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And it's been a pleasure to have you. And, you know, I hope everyone goes out and gets their hands on Rally Point. I know I really enjoyed reading it and, you know, hearing about your experience and, you know, really opened my eyes to the, this district you know justin and i are fairly new to it so and you know thank you again thank you wonderful to be with you and best wishes to all the listeners out there too you've been listening to spotlight 19 you've been listening to episode 19 of spotlight 19 i believe we're at 19 already and look like it's going to stop anytime soon so stay tuned we'll be back and keep the faith 